0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn Presents. I'm Maura aarons and this is The Anxious Achiever, we look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. From a major breakup to the mental health toll a chronic disease takes, today's guest is someone who knows the power of therapy. She's the best-selling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and the host of the Dear Therapist podcast, Lori Gottlieb. Lori built her career in therapy later in life, but she's since embraced it along with writing as her life's work. Lori is a storyteller, and she helps her patients, as she says, edit their own stories. Lori is also a passionate advocate for those suffering from the autoimmune diseases of Graves' disease and thyroid eye disease. We'll talk a bit about the impact of chronic pain and illnesses on our mental health. But the advice Lori gives for dealing with the emotional impact of physical ailments, believing in yourself, giving yourself permission to mourn your past life, sticking with it through change and writing about your feelings, applies to all of life's challenges, including those at work. She also offers up some great advice on when to know if you should seek out a therapist. Here's our conversation. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, along with millions of others, I think we're your fans because you're so good at bringing us along into your sort of inner journey as you write, as you tell stories. And I'm and I'm curious, why talk now about chronic disease? Why for you and and why for this moment, why use your voice for it? Well, this is something I have some personal experience in. If you
1: read, maybe you should talk to someone, you know that I was having some lots of symptoms that nobody could really understand. And I was told all the time, it's just in your head. It's just Mm -hmm. in your head. You're stressed out. You're anxious. And I think that happens, especially to women, where we have these kind of vague-seeming symptoms. It might be fatigue. It might be like something's going on with our eyes. It might be You know, like our, we feel like our heart rate is faster. It might be our weight is fluctuating and people say, Oh, you know, you need to, you need to de-stress or, you know, maybe you need to go see a therapist or whatever it might be. And I think that what's really unfortunate about that is that people start to doubt themselves. They start to think, well, maybe it is all in my head. And I really feel strongly that we understand that we know ourselves best. If something doesn't feel right, you need to listen to that. You need to believe yourself. Nobody knows you better than you know yourself. And so I really want to encourage people that if something doesn't feel right, to go and talk to someone, talk to a doctor. And if that doctor isn't listening or taking you seriously, to go back to another doctor and keep going until you find someone who will take you seriously.
0: Well, so what was the process like for you? Because if I recall from your book, you were literally told that you had hysteria.
1: Yeah, those words weren't used, but but historically, yes. I mean, that's what women have been told. And I I talk about the history of that in the book a little bit, where it used to, at one point, they thought that, you know, women had a wandering uterus if they were experiencing these symptoms. (laughs) And, you know, for me, it was a process of really being able to advocate for myself. And I feel like this is so important right now, because six out of 10 Americans are dealing with a chronic illness. So if you aren't experiencing that yourself, someone you know is. And you might not even know that they are because there's so much shame and secrecy around this because it's very hard to explain to someone what it means when you're feeling really tired. Someone will say, oh yeah, me too. I'm really tired. Yeah. But it's a completely different thing. So there are these kind of vague seeming symptoms. And you know, if you complain about it enough, people will say, oh, well, did you go to a doctor? And you'll say, yeah, my doctor says that I'm fine, that nothing's wrong with me. So then people start not believing you, the people who are there who should be supporting you don 't believe you either, so this is and then it affects our mental health, so mm-hmm. people come to therapy and they they feel like you know people are saying this is all in my head, and what I help people to do is to advocate for themselves because you know I don't know what the medical situation is with them, but I want to make sure that they are going to someone who is going to do the proper workups and send them to specialists if needed until they get an answer about what is going on
0: yeah, totally, and I would imagine also for quote sort of successful people because you know, a lot of us walk around and we sort of wear our fatigue and our stress as like battle armor and a, a badge of honor. That you know, you sort of say, "I'm I'm I'm really tired. I, I just I'm so my heart is beating," and everyone's like, "Yeah, me too. It comes with the job. You know, like get used to it." Yeah,
1: and I think it gets explained away like that. But I also think that there's a part, like everyone that I've talked to who has had a chronic illness has said, yes, sometimes I would start to doubt myself because people would say things like that. But I also knew this was qualitatively different.
0: Okay, but I'm going to just throw a curveball because I think that when you have a chronic disease, and I know myself, you know, you can feel very anxious and you can get depressed, and you are not always the most reliable narrator of your truth when you are. Depressed when you're anxious. Like, how do you how do you separate all of that?
1: I think you're a a reliable narrator in terms of how you feel and how your body Mm -hmm. feels. And in terms of the anxiety, I think what happens is when you get talked out of your reality, that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. It creates a lot of anxiety because there's a part of you that's really scared, like, what is wrong with my body? Mm -hmm. And the other part of you that's like, but nobody's listening and I feel so alone in this. And I think that isolation is a big part of dealing with a chronic illness, that people need to be educated, especially after you get a diagnosis. So once you get your diagnosis, which often feels like quite a relief, there's a, there are two parts, I think, to the diagnosis. One is there's maybe some grief or loss. Like, mm. I'm glad I know what it is. We always say name it to tame it. That that We say that with anxiety, with depression, we say that with a physical illness as well. But I think the other part is, and now this is something that's not going to go away. I'm going to have to learn how to manage this for the rest of my life. And so there is some grief and loss with that. But I think with it also comes some empowerment of, but now I can get the treatment that I need finally so I can feel better. Now I can go to people who specialize in this particular diagnosis and they'll know how to help
0: me. Hmm. We humans hate uncertainty, right? Like dealing with uncertainty is one of the hardest things (laughs) we humans face. And I'm curious, you know, you're a therapist, so you're skilled at helping people deal with uncertainty. But I would imagine that having an unnamed chronic illness puts you into a maelstrom of uncertainty because you know something's wrong. You don't know what. You can imagine all these outcomes, right? Like your head can go to some pretty scary places.
1: Yeah. And especially when you get the message that whatever you're experiencing doesn't really have a name or Mm. people give it the wrong name. So for example, with Graves' disease, which is a thyroid condition, 50% of people who have Graves' disease will also have thyroid eye disease, which is a separate diagnosis. So when people are complaining about, you know, I'm having double vision or I'm having pain in my eyes, many doctors have said to them, Oh, this is part of your Graves' disease, but actually, no. This is thyroid eye disease, what we call TED or TED, and so they're they're not getting the treatment that they need. They need to go to a specialist who knows how to treat thyroid eye disease. Hmm.
0: I want to ask you more broadly. This is a show about work and career and finding the career that's right for you. So I want to ask you a little bit about your job as a therapist. You had lots of other jobs. <laughs> how old were you when when you actually started practicing therapy?
1: So I took the most nonlinear route ever, probably, <laughs> <laughs> to becoming a therapist. When I had graduated from college, I was really interested in storytelling. And I, I love sort of story and the human condition, which is the common thread throughout everything I've done. And yeah. so I worked first in feature film development in Hollywood, and then I moved over to NBC and did primetime series development. And one of the shows that I was working on was ER, which of course now everybody knows what that was, but at the time it was, it was brand new. And we had a consultant who was an ER doctor and I would go in the ER with him purportedly to, you know, kind of research story ideas. But he would always say to me, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. And I did, you know, like I was so curious about these real life stories that were playing out. And so he encouraged me to apply to medical school and I did. And when I was at medical school, I went up to Stanford where it was the beginning of that whole sort of dot-com boom before the first bust. And A lot of people were saying, you know, like there's this new thing called managed care and you won't get to spend a lot of time with your patients. And it's a whole new kind of field that's emerging. And I was I had this fantasy of being the family doctor who guided people through their lives. (laughs) And it seemed like that wasn't going to happen. And I started writing when I was up there and I ended up publishing a lot. And I left medical school to become a journalist where I felt I can help people to tell their stories And it was later after I had my son when, you know, I think as a new parent, a lot of people can relate to that feeling of sort of not having a lot of adult company. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And so mm -hmm. I was working as a journalist, but it was very lonely in the sense of adult company. I was thrilled to be a mom. But when I was getting a lot of deliveries and the UPS guy would come and I would literally detain him just to have conversation, (laughs) I would be like, you know, how about those diapers? And do you have kids? And he would back away to his big brown truck to avoid, you know, the lady with the baby. And I realized, okay, I have to do something about this. So I decided to call up the dean at Stanford and say, you know, can I come back and finish medical school? And she said, you're welcome to do that. I wanted to do psychiatry, I realized. Mm. So she said, you're welcome to do that. But a lot of psychiatry is medication management. And you really like the stories. You like the long relationships. You like getting in there deep. And so why don't you get a graduate degree in political psychology and you can do the kind of work that you want to do. And it was the perfect... Advice for me at the time because it was like I went from being a journalist who helped people to tell their stories to being a therapist who helps people to edit their stories. And I really feel that my background as a writer helps me as a therapist because I feel like we're all people who come in with a story that is keeping us stuck and it's a faulty narrative and it needs a really good edit. And my job is as much as being a therapist is to be a good editor in that room and help people to untangle those stories
0: and to be able to move forward. Yeah, I must admit that my achiever heart like did a jolt when I was like, she dropped out of Stanford Medical School. Do you know how hard it is to get into Stanford Medical School? Like, <laughs> were, were you anxious when you left? Like, were you like, oh, my God, my parents are going to be so disappointed or like, I'm throwing this away? yeah. I think that there's a kind of, I don't know, kind of a way of going through life that
1: I've always had, which was we only get one life and other people might have opinions about how you should live your life. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to those because they might have good feedback. But at the end of the day, no one else is living your life for you. And so they might not drop out of Stanford Medical School, yeah. but I felt like that was the right thing to do for me. And it absolutely was. And so I have this career where I used my background as a writer, as a storyteller, and then as someone who was always like the kind of, empirical science person because we need to use that as therapists too Mm -hmm. and it's kind of this great hybrid of all these different interests that I have which again comes down to the human condition and and story and I think that you know what what are our lives if not the stories of our lives and how do we take control of those narratives
0: Mm -hmm. something I also found super moving um when I read your book, I was writing my own first book and you turned down a really big advance on a book yes. publisher based on a viral article. And and you turned it down and you said, I'm not gonna write this book. And I think that's like for for people on the show, I think I think one of the things that I find, and I'm not a clinician, you know, but anxious achievers, we're often telling ourselves the what if story. That's such a powerful narrative. What if I had said yes to this advance? Would my life be totally different? Did you have that what if story when you turned down that big advance? Oh, a hundred
1: percent. That was <laughs> that that's I so I write very candidly about my career trajectory and the different decisions along the way and maybe you should talk to someone. So it's a memoir of, you know, how I became a therapist and all the different twists and turns to, you know, becoming where I am now. And it's also the story of four of my patients, and then I'm the fifth patient, and I'm going to therapy to work through something in life as well. And one of the things that I'm trying to work through is I have this, so I turned down this this advance, this huge advance. I wrote this article called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. It went crazy viral all over the world. And I didn't want to write that book because I felt like I don't want to write a helicopter parenting book. And I don't feel like I would be saying anything new. Like I can write that book. It's an easy book to write, which is why everyone said you should write it because you'll get a lot of money to write something Mm -hmm. that's easy for you to write. But it felt inauthentic and it felt like I want to do something meaningful in my life. And I don't want to just check off this box that isn't meaningful to me. So I said I wasn't going to write it. And then I was going to write about sort of what was happening with the adults. And then it just, that didn't feel meaningful to me either. And My agent at the time said, you have to write this book. You just have to do this. And then you can write what you want afterwards. And I couldn't do it. And so I was in therapy talking about, I I literally can't write this book. Like I get in front of the screen and I can't do it because it feels so meaningless to me. And what I really want to write about is this (laughs) other thing, but everyone's telling me, no, you can't do that. And in fact, when I canceled this book, the book was supposed to be about happiness. It's ironically, the happiness book made me depressed when I canceled that because I didn't want to write it. I had written maybe like three fourths of it at a certain point, but I like didn't want to put it out in the world. I didn't think it was helpful to people. I wanted to write this other book, which became maybe you should talk to someone and publishers turned it down. Everyone said, no, one's going to read that. And what's funny about that is now it's sold, you know, over a million copies. It's being made into a TV series. It's, you know, hugely popular. It resonates with everybody. And the, the irony of that is that, you know, if I had listened to everybody and they said, no one's going to read this, I would have written some shallow happiness book that I didn't care about at all. So I think that's where when you ask, you know, how did you feel dropping out of Stanford Medical School? How did you feel doing all these things? I think I always just sort of listened to my inner compass about what, the next best thing for me to do was without thinking too far into the future.
0: Like this is the next best choice for me. This is the next best book for me, that kind of thing. Okay. Let's, let's talk about that because an inner compass, I think, I think a lot of listeners might be nodding, but saying, I don't know if I can hear my inner compass, or I feel like my inner compass is shrouded by so many shoulds and, and oh my God, and worries. Do you think you developed a strong inner compass? Were you born with it? Was it, did your parents help give it to you? Like, What advice do you have on getting back in touch with that inner compass?
1: I don't know how it evolved, but I know that I help therapy patients listen to their inner compass. And I think the way you do that is you have to quiet down all of the noise out Mm -hmm. there that silences that inner voice that we hear. We all have this inner voice. Sometimes we just can't hear it or access it because there's so much loud noise going on. It's like I always say to people, there's like a circus going on in your head. How could you possibly (laughs) hear yourself think? How could you possibly just sit with yourself and see what emerges. Nothing's going to emerge because it's getting pushed down by everybody else's opinion and then all the societal expectations and all the cultural expectations. And at a certain point, you lose yourself. And I think when you lose yourself, you are literally, I use that word intentionally, you lose yourself because you are now lost. You cannot find your way. And how do you find your way? You look at what's coming up. So what happens is people then start to feel sad or anxious or, you know, what do we do when we numb our inner compass, when we numb our feelings? Well, they come out in other ways. It might be too much food or too much wine or insomnia or a short temperedness or difficulty in relationships, right? So, and then people want to like push that down. They don't want to feel those feelings because they're uncomfortable. And I always say to people, use your feelings like a compass. They tell you what to do. They tell you what direction to go in. Even envy, you know, with career, a lot of people will say, God, I'm so, like, I'm so envious of that person's career. And then they don't want to feel envy because they feel like it's taboo and you shouldn't feel envy. Right. It's a bad feeling. Right. And I say, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. So there's something, look at your envy. That's great. So what is it about that, what they're doing, what that other person is doing that you want, it might not look exactly the same, but it's giving you information. What does that inspire in you? What are the elements of what that person is doing that you would like to do too? And how can you create that for yourself? People often think that, you know, when they kind of numb their feelings, that numbness is the absence of feelings. But I always say that numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. So if you can just get quiet, then you'll be able to know, okay, what is this feeling and what is it telling me? Why am I anxious? What is not working right? Why am I angry? Are my boundaries being violated? Am I holding myself back in some way? Who am I angry at
0: and why? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to. If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You know, it's funny, people, I'm, I'm going through a sort of what do I want to do with my life phase. And everyone I know has been like, you need to go on a retreat by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to go on a retreat. Like, that feels lonely to me but is is there some is is there some validity in the idea of getting lonely with yourself? I think there's some
1: validity to silence, meaning in silence we can hear ourselves think, hmm. and so silence isn't mindlessly scrolling through the internet. You know I've never gotten a good idea by being on Twitter. I just haven't. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think that, I think you have to find a way to hear yourself. And for some people that's, I'm going to go take a walk right now, but I'm not going to listen to a podcast, right? I'm just going to like take a walk. Sometimes it is listening to a podcast. And I think that there's no should or one way to do it. And I think that's the problem is everybody has an idea about how you should or need to do something. And I think you need to experiment for yourself and see what
0: works for you. Is it a good reason to start therapy?
1: I like to say that therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who's not already in your life. And I think that last part is so valuable because when you have the perspective of somebody observing you who has the vantage point of not being in your life, something new emerges from that. So somebody will come in and all the people in their life have so many opinions mm-hmm. about what they should do. And they have so many great ideas for them. And the person comes in and says, I'm so confused. And then I can hear them talk in a different way. Like I'm hearing them differently than someone who has a pre-existing idea about them or has some history with them. So it's a really clean space to go to, to really be able to kind of explore things that maybe you
0: can't explore in the same way outside of the therapy room. Mm. I wonder if, People are listening, thinking, "Do I need to go to therapy like how do How do you know? Is it just a spidey sense? I'm curious how you find most people get to your room.
1: The interesting thing about that is I always say to people that if you're asking yourself if you should go to therapy, that's your inner therapist telling you you should go to therapy <laughs> and what I mean by that is that so many people have this hierarchy of pain like well, yeah, I've been a little sad or I'm not really fulfilled in my career, my relationship, but I don't really know why, but it doesn't really matter because I have a roof over my head and food on the table and people would kill for this job or this relationship or whatever. I'm not Ukrainian. Right. 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 You know, I, you compare it to whatever we don't do that with our physical health. So if you like, you know, fall down and you break your wrist or something, right. We don't say, I'm not going to go to the doctor and get an x-rayed and get this treated because somebody else has stage four cancer. Mm -hmm. We don't make that comparison. We say, I need help here. I'm going to go get help for this. I need to get this checked out. What we do with our emotional health often is people don't come to me until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. It was like they had some chest pain, right? <laughs> and they didn't go to the doctor. You just, it, we we do something very different with our emotional health. And so the problem with waiting until you have an emotional heart attack is that, first of all, now we have to get you back to baseline. Now we have to get you back to the place that you were when you first had that inkling of a thought of, maybe I should go to therapy. Mm. So we got to get you back there. So we have to do that. But the other part, and this part kind of breaks my heart, is that you've suffered unnecessarily for maybe weeks or months or often years. It can take years for someone to even say I want to go and have a consultation with a therapist. And so that shouldn't be so scary. Why is that so scary? When if, if you felt something was off in your body, you'd say I'll go to my I'll go to a doctor and see what's going on. Let me just get it checked out. Hmm. I think that that's really unfortunate because going to a therapist doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean you're crazy or something's wrong with you.
0: It means that you're taking care of your mental wellness. And why wouldn't you? But therapy is also about change. And and your own therapist, Wendell, I've, I love this quote, said, the nature of life yes. is change and the nature of people is to resist change.
1: That's right. And change is really hard because with change comes loss. Mm. So people will stay in a situation that they're stuck in for a very long time because there's something about the familiar that feels mm-hmm. safe. And when you make a change, you're going to lose the familiar. You have to grieve the familiar. Even if the familiar was miserable, you still are giving something up. People will stay in jobs or relationships or situations for a very long time because the familiar feels comfortable to them. And we don't do well with uncertainty. If you let go of the familiar, then we move into a place of uncertainty. There's this great moment, and maybe you should talk to someone where Wendell, my therapist, says to me, you know, you remind me of this cartoon, and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no bars. So why don't we walk around the bars? That's what changes, changes walking around the bars. They're open. We don't have to do anything. We just need to walk out. Why don't we do that? Because with freedom comes responsibility. Now we can't blame our predicament on this or that or the other thing. Now we are responsible for our choices. And that can feel really scary, too. And the other thing I'll say about change is that change doesn't happen the way that we imagine it does, meaning we make New Year's resolutions. We say, I'm going to make this change. And lo and behold, why did they fail so much of the time? Because there are stages to change, and I write about these too, and maybe you should talk to someone. And the first stage is pre-contemplation, where we don't even know that we're thinking about making the change. It's just kind of there outside of our awareness. And then there's contemplation, where now we're aware that we're thinking about it, but we're not ready to do anything about it. And then we do... This phase called preparation, where we're, pre- we're preparing, we're taking the steps to prepare to make the change. Like, what do we need to do? We do our research. We figure out what would I do if I were to make this change? What would it look like? It's logistical. It's practical. Some, some emotional preparation. And then action is where we make the change. And people mistakenly think that that's where it ends. Action. You've made the change. No. The most important step in the stages of change is the next one and the last one, which is called maintenance. How do you maintain the change? And the big misconception about that is that people think that if you slip back, because you will, that you failed. That So, oh, well, I shouldn't have made the change because, oh, I called that person at 3 a.m. Oh, well, I guess I'll just get back into that relationship. Or, you know, oh, I didn't get the job that I applied for. See, I should have just stayed in my old job. So, you know, all those things where you're going to have setbacks or I was going to get healthy and I was going to do this, but, oh, I ended up having like two pieces of cake today. Oh, well, see, it didn't work. So I'm just going to be unhealthy.
0: I can't change. I can't change.
1: See, it didn't work. But no, no, no. This is normal. This is part of change is that you are going to slip back and you are going to be really compassionate with yourself. Self-compassion is crucial to the maintenance phase. People think that if they self-flagellate, that they're going to be more accountable. No. When you self-flagellate, you are bathed in shame. You're just criticizing yourself. You feel bad about yourself. You can't do anything positive when you're in that state. You have to be in a place of self-compassion so that you can be accountable to yourself. So you say, that was okay, this is what happened, it's part of the process, I'm gonna be kind to myself and then I'm just gonna get back up and go back on track tomorrow and that's fine. And the more you do that, the more practice you have of going back and getting on track, the less you're going to slip back. And then these new habits are going to be integrated into your daily life. You're going to get more used to them. They're going to feel less unfamiliar. You're going to feel more comfortable with them. And then they're just going to be part of your daily life and the change will have been made.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and people don't realize that it's this long process and you have to embrace the process.
0: And what's the role of therapy throughout all of this?
1: I think therapy is really helping you to stay on track. Therapy is helping you to see what are the ways that you self-sabotage on this route to change? What are your blind spots? What are these patterns that you can't see? You know, it's kind of like the difference between what I talk about in the book, the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. Your friend comes to you and says, look what happened, look what this person did. And we say, yeah, you were right, they were wrong. We just blindly back them up. But if you listen to your friends over time You might hear that they're telling the same kind of story, maybe with different characters, different people, or maybe it's the same person, but it's the same kind of incident that keeps coming up over and over. And it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. And we don't say that to our friends. What you get in therapy instead is wise compassion. So we don't just blindly back up your version of events. What we say is, you know, we really are holding up a mirror to you to help you to see something about your role that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. That's not to say that there aren't difficult circumstances or difficult people. You know, we always say that before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? It's very hard to be around difficult people. So of course you're gonna be depressed, but what is your role in this? Why? How do you respond to this person? Can you respond differently to this person? Can you make changes going back to changes in your life where you don't have to be around this person in the same way? Can you set boundaries? What is your role in this? You know, you're doing a dance with somebody else. We're all doing dances with everybody we interact with. And if you change your dance steps, the other person is either going to have to change their dance steps or they're just going to fall down and have to leave the dance floor. Hmm. So we need to change our dance steps. So when we talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion, what you get in therapy is you get wise compassion. We're going to hold up a mirror, help you to see something about what's going on, help you to find agency in these situations, and also help you to rewrite some of these faulty narratives that are holding you back. People are walking around with all kinds of stories, like I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or this thing will never work out for me. Things never work out for me. Or I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough for that.
0: Hmm.
1: And so we really need to work on where are these stories coming from? And then how can we... Come up with an edited version that's more accurate to who you are now today, as opposed to the stories that you've been told. We have to remember that when we're young, the stories that we're told are being told to us by people whose stories are much more about the people telling the stories than about who we were or who we
0: are. And then as we get older, what happens? We forget to remember that they are not about the people anymore. Like, what, how does what happens in that change? when
1: we get older, we need someone to be able to help us see that those stories were really about something that wasn't working with that person who was telling us the stories, whatever their issues were, were being projected onto us through those stories. So the person who's like, oh, you know, you're always this, mm-hmm. you know, you're the, this one, you're the, this kid, the yeah. the this, kid. this is your issue. Even things that maybe were positive, but get spun in a negative way because maybe your parents felt threatened by you. So like, you're such a perfectionist, you know, oh, you're so ambitious, but it wasn't a good thing. Why do you care so much? Why do you have to get the highest A?
0: Do you speak from personal experience? (laughs) Um, Some of that. Yes, definitely. So one of the things I'm hearing when I talk to people, especially people who have been working remotely and are sort of heading back into hybrid work right now, is that they feel like they learned a lot about their boundaries having worked at home and, and sort of reclaimed them. Like, oh, you know what? I didn't like it when my coworkers were all doing this all the time. And now I've I've had my own space. And how do I stand up for myself? <laughs> How do you think and, and how as a therapist how can you help people both remember what their boundaries are and and create a process of st- sustainable change in maintaining those boundaries especially at work where they're, where it's so hard to keep them keep them going
1: Yeah Yeah, I think definitely the pandemic made us look at what are our priorities, what are the relationships that matter to us, what are the things that we will and will not put up with anymore because we didn't have the bandwidth for it anymore. And I think that one of the things that came out of it is as people go back to work, they're very clear about what they want to spend their time on and how they want to spend their time and what matters to them. And I think finding meaning in what they're doing with their work and purpose. And so I think setting boundaries is a big part of that, but people need to learn how to set boundaries. I have a podcast called the Dear Therapist Podcast where we actually do sessions with people. So someone writes in a problem and Guy Winch and I do a session with them. You probably know him. He's a fellow Ted Talker. Mm-hmm. And. We then give them a homework assignment at the end of the session because people always say, well, what is it? how does it help to just talk about this? Like, How do you put that into action? So we give concrete homework assignments. They have a week to do them. And then they come back and tell us how it went so the listeners can hear, oh, this is what happens. This is how even in one conversation, you can make concrete shifts in that issue. And one of the episodes was from somebody who was having trouble setting boundaries with his boss. And she would text him outside of work for things that didn't need to be addressed outside of work. And he kept telling her, please don't text me outside of work. And she would do it anyway. And he didn't know what to do. And there were all kinds of boundaries, like all the time that she would she would violate. And so we really, it's a really good episode to listen to on the Dear Therapist podcast. It's the one with Paul. And what what he learned was, how do you actually set boundaries? So boundaries are not about, okay, I'm going to tell the other person that this is what I want. And then if they don't listen to that, then it's failed. Boundaries are, I'm going to set a boundary, meaning I'm going to share what it is that I need from this person. And if they don't honor my request, here is how I am going to react. So you have a boundary with yourself. So with Paul, it was, if she texts me outside of work, I am not going to respond to it. And the next day at work, if she says something about it, I will say, hey, just as a reminder, I ask that we deal with this, you know, when we get to work, unless there's a true emergency. And so it got to the point where, we, when with the follow-up where she had said to him at one point, you know, I only oh, do year-long follow-ups too. So we just did the year follow-up with him. And she had said to him, I really wanted to text you, but then I remembered that you don't want me to do that. So the other thing that happens, we talked about maintenance with making change. When you set a boundary with someone, you have to be so consistent with your boundary. You can't sometimes respond to the text and sometimes not. So what was really interesting was when he maintained the boundary with himself, if she texts me outside of work and it's not an emergency, I will not respond. He did that consistently. And then he was able to maintain that. And then she was able to say, oh, I have to change my behavior too. So she would slip up a lot. But then eventually she started saying to herself, oh, wow, he really doesn't want me to text him. So I'll wait till tomorrow at work.
0: I love that. That's a very empowering story. I love hearing that.
1: Yeah. And I think just people need to learn, what does it mean to set boundaries? And people are so worried that they're not being kind, mm-hmm. that somehow they're going to come across as like, I'm. people are not going to like me if I set a boundary. And I think that actually boundaries clarify relationships in a way that improve the relationships overall. So it ends up that you end up with a better relationship with the person because this is, you're saying to someone, when you set a boundary, you're saying, I want to be in relationship with you and here's how we can do it more effectively. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the message underneath the setting of the boundary. And people don't hear that sometimes. So you have to set the boundary in a way where they're hearing, I want to work together in a way that is actually helpful for both of us. Right.
0: And this isn't me being difficult. I think also we worry that we're being difficult. We're asking for too much. Right. No, this, is, this, is me trying to, this is me trying to make things easier for both of us. Okay. My last question is another question I get a lot. I'm going to ask you, what is the difference between a coach and a therapist? And if I'm dealing with stuff, especially at work, how do I know if I should go to a coach or a therapist? So
1: first of all, I think that anyone that you go to, to get help with something that you're dealing with, that's always a good thing if they're a reputable person, and that goes for both coaches and therapists. And I think that the difference is the approach that the person is going to take. The mm-hmm. coach is generally much more kind of practical mm-hmm. with, you know, here's some coaching about how you can approach the situation. And I think what a therapist will do is a therapist will help you to understand the bigger patterns or the bigger ways, your blind spots, things that you're not seeing, the patterns that you don't even know you're reenacting over and over and can help you to make sort of longer term changes. So it's not just this concrete issue but it's and what is driving this? Why are you having this difficulty? Have you had this difficulty before? Can we get to the bottom of it so that when you face similar things like this in the future, now you're approaching it from a different place.
0: Why are you why are you stuck behind bars that don't exist? <laughs> why aren't you walking around the bars? What's
1: keeping you from doing that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Lori, thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation.
0: That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Crinko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you to our advertisers for supporting. If you want to share your story about mental health and work, send me a message on LinkedIn. I'll always respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe or follow us and leave a review. From LinkedIn Presents, this is Maura Smealy.